Well, welcome to Urban Grace. If you are new, my name is Trev, and yes, we're starting a new series. That was great, Ben. Thanks for that. Uh, uh, pleased to be able to deliver God's word to you this morning. I am actually really excited about this series. Uh, it's in the Old Testament, and for some of you, that's uh, you don't really know what the Old Testament is all about. And so I'm glad that you're here. Uh, it comes on the verge of us kind of apprenticing to church planting or a church planting couple, Vin and Laura Doan, which we announced last week, and I think it's very appropriate for that. So I'm excited. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezra, if you would. Ezra is not too far into your Bible, seven or eight books, somewhere in there, nine or ten. I haven't counted, but it's in the first quarter of your Bible. Uh, turn in your app if you don't have one of your uh, a Bible in your hand. And if you'd like a physical Bible, just raise your hand and one of our ushers would love to bring you one. That's our gift to you if it's your first Bible. Uh, we have a habit of going through uh, books of the Bible and so you're going to need it week after week. Uh, I'm going to read out the text for you this morning and then I want to pray and we'll get right after it. So starting in Ezra chapter 1. Verse 1, I'm going to read the whole chapter. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says the Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord... The actual word in there is Yahweh, so he names the God of Israel. The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king also, brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithredath, the treasurer who counted them out to Shezbazar, the prince of Judah. For those of you who want a new name for your child, Shezbazar is not bad. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were 5,400. All these did Shezbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylonia to Jerusalem. Pretty self-explanatory, so let's pray. Jesus, we need your help. We need your spirit to open our minds to the scripture. There's a lot of work to do here in terms of blowing the dust off of this ancient book, but I believe, Jesus, this is meant for us. This is meant for our church and it's meant for us today. So help uh, provide me with the right words, the right wisdom, the right courage to proclaim your word, to proclaim the gospel clearly this morning through this ancient book, Jesus, that we believe your spirit stirred someone to write. We believe this word is alive. We believe it's living. And so may it be alive and living amongst us in our community this morning, Jesus. We ask for these things in your awesome and holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're in a brand new series called Remnant. And for those of you who don't know what the word remnant, it simply means small amount of people. That's essentially the best description 
of it. This is the story of a small amount of people that do some amazing things in what would be then called the chosen people of God. I think it's an incredibly important book, but it's going to be difficult to get without a little bit of a history lesson. And so I want you to hang in with me here for the first uh, good portion of our message so that we can uncover a little bit of the history. This is, this is really important. Some, some of us, when we read our Bibles, we, we skim over it and we miss a lot of these fine details that are actually really helpful uh, for practical lessons. Um, I believe that uh, this has particular importance for us as a church, uh, particularly, as I said, we, we apprentice uh, church planners, which means we are an incubation group for a brand new church that metaphorically we want to give birth to sometime in 2018. But in order to do that, I think we need a, to revision what we're about, to, to get a larger picture of who God really is. And the story of Ezra, although it's really about the rebuilding of God's temple, it's not really about the rebuilding of God's temple. It's ultimately about the rebuilding of God's people. That's how God works. Sometimes he brings them around to do tasks and and to give them things to do, but he's not simply about giving them things to do as much as he's rebuilding them personally. I think that's what he wants to do in our church. Not that we necessarily need to be rebuilt, but as we do this project called giving birth to a new church, we need to be rebuilt continually as a people of God. And we need new and fresh vision because some of you, and I'll give you a warning right now, some of you, we believe the Spirit of God is going to tug on your heart. We believe God has a Spirit, a Holy Spirit, that is going to tug on some of your hearts to do some things that you had no intention of doing when you showed up to Urban Grace. Let me tell you the story then of the book of Ezra. It's, uh, if you were thinking of it in terms of novel, it'd be one of these magical books that is, uh, has, has great wide-sweeping notions. I don't know if many of you have have read the book of Ezra before. I don't even know this morning if you would call yourself a Christian. We believe this is still a great place for you to incubate, to learn what Christianity is all about. But essentially, when we start the book of Ezra, we do not start with Ezra's firsthand experience. Ezra is what many would attribute the author of the book of Ezra But we believe that he actually compiled not his first-hand account, but someone else's account of what happened. So the book of Ezra actually spans a little over a hundred years. Next week, I promise you, I'll have a full kind of write-up on everything that I've said this morning. So you can kind of keep that in your mind as we go through the series. But Ezra himself doesn't cover that whole hundred years. Actually, he only covers a small portion of it, chapters 7 through 12, Chapters 1 through 6 are, in essence, like sort of a flashback. You ever watch a movie that has a, most of the movie is the flashback of what happens prior to the actual event, and then three-quarters of the way movie, you get to present day, and that's where the action really starts to take off. Essentially, chapters 1 through 6 are a flashback of Ezra going back almost 60 years to describe the start of what was God calling his people back out of exile. Now, right there, we have to do a lot of background information. The exile is not something we generally talk about. Uh, It's not uh, public knowledge uh, necessarily. It's not public knowledge. It is public knowledge. It's not widespread knowledge for the average Christian person, actually, in today's culture. Let me describe uh, the exile like this. Um, God disciplining his fine children for 70 years. This is what's typically called the exile. Essentially, the story of God is, and if you didn't know this, Ezra is not in chronological order in your Bible. So actually, by the time you hit Ezra, you actually skip forward. I'm not exactly sure why they put Ezra exactly where it is, but it has to do with the lessons that God wanted his people to learn. But essentially... The story of God, if you follow it from the very beginning chronologically, is God created Adam and Eve perfect in the garden, and they messed it up, and he began to rebuild his people from here on out. 
Essentially, he begins building and developing a people, a nation, a promise is given to Abraham. They multiply, they're fruitful and multiply for centuries. They grow to a very large number of people, and God decides, I want permanent land for these people. And he opens a doorway to what was then the land of Canaan, which becomes the land that is in Israel today. They're still fighting over it, by the way, as you may or may not know. Uh, There's still disagreements over which God gave which land. I don't know if this will ever come, there will ever be peace over there because everyone believes God gave them this land. And you're always going to have a fight when you say, like, that's, that's your, your trump card, right? Well, sorry, I'd like to give you this land, but God kind of gave it to me. That's kind of the approach that everyone has had. But Israel essentially says, thank you, God, for this land. They begin to build up Uh, continue to build up, they begin to divide up, they begin to conquer, and essentially they conquer with their 12 tribes. Uh, Again, this is a very compact way of speaking about this. There's much more that I could say. But what happens is, is that as God's people receive God's land for them, they begin to get complacent. They begin to say, well, because we have this land, God must be blessing us. What happens over, the t- over time, is that God's people actually begin ignoring God's word. They start disobeying God, but because they have the land, they've had everything that they wanted, they ignore God. And God begins to warn them through prophets. A lot of these prophets that you find in the Old Testament, which is the, uh, the Old Covenant version of our Bible, talk about these prophets who begin to speak about, please listen to God, that, that's a gentle way of saying it, Please listen to God, or else he's going to take away your land. Now, remember, the land is the most important thing to these people. Not that far-fetched. Most of us are in Calgary, and maybe we've moved here because there's the opportunity for land. In lots of countries in the world, you have no hope of owning your own land and your own house. In Calgary, it's almost expected of you to move toward owning your own land. So we understand a little bit of what it means to own our own property and how important this could possibly be. God's people continue to disbelieve God that he will take away their land. And and so this one prophet, his name is Jeremiah, he actually comes on the scene and he says, God is going to put you in a disciplinary period and that will get your attention. He actually describes this disciplinary period in Jeremiah chapter 51 and Jeremiah chapter 29 and says it's going to be about 70 years. It's quite a prediction. You have to get pretty accurate if you're going to say it's about 70 years. A prediction that actually he's pretty right on him, no matter which way you shake it. Essentially what happens is that God allows for a neighboring country to then come and take away the land, to destroy them, to overthrow them, to sack the key city, Jerusalem, and to essentially put all of the people in exile. I've got a map for you this morning. Sorry, we're already on point one, Rob. I apologize for that. Let's jump to the map. Everyone loves maps, right? Uh, The area we're talking about is right about here. Okay, this is the area right in here uh, from a large version that would have been considered the land. There's Jerusalem right there, uh, the Jordan River, which splits kind of many of the tribes and the land of Israel, which is still a point of contention today, uh, is right kind of going up and down north and south right here. Essentially what God allows and what God actually predicts is that the hated enemy Babylon, which essentially was the powerhouse, the superpower of the day, think United States, think Russia, think China, think superpower countries that if they so chose could dominate other countries. I'll let your mind run and wander a little bit with that one. Essentially takes over Jerusalem. This takes approximately 70 years. Now again, this is a little lengthy uh, history lesson for you this morning. What then happens is after some time in between the 70-year period, God says, now that, you, now that I have your attention, I'm going to bring you back into my land and we're going to rebuild you. Now, in this process of the 70 years, what Babylon, what King Nebuchadnezzar decided to do was to kill a few people 
but take the best, the all-stars of the culture, remove them from their own country, and bring them into Babylon and give them university scholarships, essentially, to train them up in Babylonian culture, help them invest in the Babylonian uh, cities, uh, learn all these things. If you're interested, the book of Daniel is about the story of one person who is such all-star. He's a cultural elite, so to speak. He's brought into Babylon, and he has to act like a missionary in not just a foreign city, but an enemy foreign city. At about the 70-year point, this is where our book of Ezra begins. God sovereignly allows another superpower, Persia, to overtake Babylon. Okay? And as Persia overtakes Babylon... Essentially, the first, in the first year of that overturning, King Cyrus of Persia issues a decree. Does that help bring this whole picture? This is what's amazing, even, even as I describe that, is that God is allowing this, this enemy country, Babylon, to overtake his own cherished people and his own land that they've worked thousands, hundreds of years to obtain, essentially, and then he uses another superpower enemy country to overtake them to bring his people back. Israel just kind of sits there and goes into captivity and then gets released. They, they really are, are, they're not active participants in this. They don't destroy any neighboring country. They don't raise up an army. Essentially, uh, the 70-year period is quite a discouraging one. There's not a lot on it. Because it's a pretty discouraging period. It's a period of godlessness. It's a period where uh, the centerpiece of their religious and spiritual life, the temple, lies destroyed in ruins. Meaning the people can't worship God. Now, picture this. Imagine that the United States of America came in, or China, if you will, or Russia came into Canada and destroyed every church building. Wouldn't that be discouraging? Wouldn't some of you say, I don't know. I was in it when we had a building, but now that not only do we not have a building, we don't have a hope for a building and no chance to re- rebuild. They've destroyed all of the zoning laws. There's no chance that any of us can ever build a church again for 70 years. Some of you would say, okay, I'm out. I'm going to find something else to do. That's how it would feel to be an Israelite at this point. That's how discouraging that would be. Now, let's also remember that the books of Ezra and Nehemiah go together. In fact, some of you may not know this, but only the English translations recently have separated the two. For many, many years, this is one complete book. Kind of a a flashback and then some firsthand experience by Ezra, who was a scribe. He was a teacher of God's word. And then the book of Nehemiah is firsthand as well. And this deals, uh, this is more of a civic leader who kind of takes... Uh, the charge from there. Again, a lot of historical information. This is going to be valuable later on. But essentially, by the time we reach the text, the call has gone out from King Cyrus, and some are responding. And that's why it says in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, commentators actually think this isn't the actual first year he became king. It's just the first year that he essentially overtook Babylon. This is amazing. In a 70-year period, you've got two world superpowers who overtake one another, both of which don't exist anymore and shortly thereafter fail to exist. But at the time, they loom large. Superpower. The Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, proclaims that God will stir the king of Persia to the point where he doesn't make just an oral decree of what he wants to happen. He actually writes it down. Now, do you know how important that is in this culture? When you make a written decree, you put your stamp on it, and that is law. That's the way it's done. This wasn't simply, oh, I heard that Cyrus, king of Persia, was interested in letting some people go. This was a foreign king who, by the way, did not worship the God of Israel, decreeing in writing, I am allowing anyone 
from the Babylonian period who has faced the exile to return to their homeland to build up their own place of worship once again and rebuild their city and the life as they knew it. Isn't that an amazing thing? The Lord, now, now right away, right away, I immediately go, you know, there isn't always a political connection. But for those of us who have watched what's gone politically in the last week, and have actually felt fear that does God really know what he's doing when he puts people into power? This is a great text that reminds us he knows every second of what he's doing. Nothing escaped God here. He drew Babylon to do his work, then he drew Persia to do his work, and Israel was kind of like sitting in the corner while all this went on. Now, it did take 70, 140 years. Yes, it did took a long time. But the first thing we can learn is that God is sovereignly, God is sovereignly in charge of these events. Even when it appears he is silent. And thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, he actually names him Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Okay, that's a little arrogant from his point of view. Of course it is. He's a king, right? That's what kings say, yeah. The God of the universe has given me all this land to deal with. You know, you can see Ezra kind of like emoticon roll eyes going on. He's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, before you think this guy has this epiphany and is turning his life over to Jesus Christ, let me say this. He was doing what served him. The idea behind uh, the Persian government was that they released anyone who had been taken captive by Babylon in what I can only kind of ascribe to as like a Godfather-type moment. Who's seen The Godfather? Okay, anyone seen The Godfather? Right, the story behind The Godfather is he essentially, he does favors for these other people so that one day when he needs to call upon them, they do favors for him, right? Give him an offer he can't refuse. That's the worst Godfather impression you'll ever hear in your life. But this is, what, this is his approach. He wasn't a generous godfather. He was simply saying self-serving. He was going, I will serve you for two years, five years, ten years, twenty years down the road when I need a favor from you. And then I'll call upon you and you will be loyal to me. This was essentially the idea behind the king of Persia. He was saying, why don't you go back and build up your church again? Why don't you build up your worship? Why don't you retain all your culture and your language and everything like that so that when somebody tries to overtake us in 40 years we can call in Israel and of course Israel will be there for us right am I right am I right Israel am I right that's essentially what he's saying and yet God used that to bring God's people back into Jerusalem shows us a very sovereign powerful God it shows us that even though we will see that only a few end up returning, that this is about the size of God, not about the size of the group of people that return. It's an important lesson for us to learn as we begin to envision what it looks like to give birth to churches, to make disciples in our city, because some of us look around and we see the lack we see what we don't have. We see that other churches have big buildings, free buildings, lots of people, huge budgets, full salaries. His text reminds us, we don't need all that to do what God's asking us to do. God's sovereignly in control, regardless of what we think and regardless of who's in power. It, we also see that God sovereignly uses anyone to do his work, even when it's selfish motivations. For those of us who feel as though the wrong people are in power, we have the wrong mayor, we have the wrong civic leaders, I have the wrong MLA, I have the wrong this, wrong that. This reminds us of something that's said often in the New Testament, which is God puts these people in place for his purposes. And we have nothing to fear. 
and that our goal is not always to overturn these people and put Christian leaders in Christian power positions, but rather to say, let's worship Jesus and let him do what he wants to do. The call that went out to Ezra's remnant is actually one of the very reasons why we started our church. We started our church simply because we heard what we felt was Jesus' voice. We didn't know what we were doing. We still don't really know what we're doing. We simply heard that more people needed to know the gospel. We took a look at the closest city to us in the city where my wife grew up, in the city that I had by that time called home. We looked in the urban core and said, if, if cities work this way and such, then, then we need more gospel-preaching churches in the urban core, and we could hardly find any. And I began to actually try to persuade people to go plant churches in the urban core, and I developed what I thought was an incredibly compelling vision for someone else to do it. If you can believe that. I planted the church with my wife because someone actually had the kahunas to look me in the eye and say, you seem to have a pretty clear vision of this. Why don't you go? And I looked straight at him and I said, I'm really comfortable where I am. And I swear I could hear the Holy Spirit giggle when I said that. Kind of like, I got you now, sucker. And I knew at that moment, I don't know if that's how the Holy Spirit sounds. Maybe he does. But I'm saying that this stuff still happens when God stirs people. And they don't really know what it's about. That he triggers some things. He puts, orchestrates world events, citywide events. To just nudge and pull on people's hearts. He still does that today. He was powerful to do it in someone's heart who didn't actually follow him for his purposes. I can guarantee you, for those of you who put your trust in Jesus Christ, he can actually do the same thing for you. That his spirit is alive, his word is living. And that it's possible that even as I preach, something is going on with some of you. And so what is that? Well, this is the second half of our text. Is that the remnant respond. I put remnant in there because the idea is sometimes you look at this list and you say, Oh, well, everyone who heard the message then left Babylon and returned to their homeland. No, they didn't. That's not how it worked. Now, if, if, before you get all judgmental like I did, let's listen carefully to the situation. Let's just pretend you were Jewish and everything in your life had been destroyed. Now, the amazing thing is, God, in the meantime of this 70-year disciplinary period where they were removed out of their land and all these cultural all-stars were taken out, God did not say, you know what, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the suburbs of Babylon. I want you to kind of group together, make your own little nice, cozy cul-de-sacs, live there, live as pure as you can, and then in 70 years, I'll call you all back. No. Actually, that was the message of the false prophets. If you read carefully the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah actually calls out and he says, hey, there's a message going around. There's a rumor going around. There's a preacher going around that's actually saying, it's only going to be two years that you have to live in Babylon, and then you're going to get everything back. He said, don't listen to that preacher. That preacher is only in for your comfort. And I'm not kidding you, that preacher died within two years. Jeremiah said, here's the right message. While you wait for 70 years and are disciplined, here's what I want you to do. Jeremiah chapter 29. It's one of the reasons why we're in the city core. He says, what I want you to do is I want you to go into enemy foreign territory and I want you to settle down. I want you to build houses. I want you to bless the city. Because if you prosper the city and the, city's pro the city prospers, then you also prosper. 
It sounds like a strange message to hear. And actually, the culmination of it is a verse that's often taken out of context, a verse that lands on a lot of Christian coffee cups. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. If anyone heard that who's a Christian or in church before, you know, it shows up underneath paintings and in Christian knickknack stores and all these sorts of things. It's always out of context and it drives me bananas. Because the preceding verse is... Listen to the call to go into enemy territory and despite everything that you know and believe, don't wholly huddle away from everything. Go to the city, bless it, even though they hate God, they hate you, and pour into the city so that it's blessed because don't worry about it, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Does that change whether or not some of you are like, oh, I'm going to throw that coffee cup off my desk tomorrow morning? Changes that context, doesn't it? You can imagine, they've been told this message. They invest their lives. They bless the city. They, they settle down. They actually marry and have children and start a life and invest in neighborhoods and help fundraise for the local soccer teams. And then Cyrus comes along and says, if you so please, you're free to go back to your homeland where nothing exists where you don't have a job, those who are living there are living amongst broken, frustrating, discouraging ruins. You'll probably live in poverty. Everyone there hates you by this time because there's nothing to do. You can imagine that some of them are like, ah, you know what, I kind of like Jeremiah 29 actually. I kind of like now that my life has become comfortable and I'm rooted in this community. And didn't just God just tell us to invest here and now he's telling us to go back? And, and remember, this isn't a command. Cyrus doesn't say, you're required to go back to your homeland. He says, if the Lord calls you, you're free to go with no penalty. No one will hold a gun to your head if you go and no one will hold a gun to your head if you don't. And then rose up a few. You can imagine why. You know, when we started Urban Grace, we did not start with a lot of heads of fathers' houses. We started with six people in my father-in-law's basement. Three of those people were related to me. Or four. Four were related to me. I think three. Somewhere in there. About three to four. We started with a few faithful, one of whom is still here. And it was hard, grinding work. And we left everything that was comfortable. I did not leave the previous church because I hated it. I loved the church. The church did not want me to go. They were frustrated. They were angry when we left. They did not understand everything to our call. And it was a very difficult time. And I remember reading the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and go, someone knows how I feel. Only a few respond to this call. Only a few respond to this call. I think what's interesting is kind of on the quote-unquote eve of Vin's church, which he's calling City Hill, or they're calling City Hill, that we just lined up with this particular series and these particular messages because now I'm speaking to those who may be part of Vin's group. You don't need a lot of people to do this. That this text is trying to show us that when just even only a few people are obedient to what they believe the spirit of the living God, when they respond to him, he loves to bless them. It's not easy. Doesn't mean the path is paved with gold and there's a money tree along the way and resource tree along the way that church planters just walk down and pick. It doesn't work like that. Sometimes it means going with less. But essentially, not everyone responds, but those who respond change the course 
of history. Without these people responding, there is no Jewish people. Those who remain behind have been so discouraged, they're basically referred to as Gentiles. So they're kind of the squatters in the country. And they'll face them later on in the book of Ezra. There's tremendous opposition against these people, from these people. That's why Ezra, Ezra has to talk about it. And, and actually, they're so discouraging and so frustrating that the returning, rebuilding work actually shuts down for a season. Where Nehemiah, at year 140 now, re-inspires them. But then rose up some of the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, some of the leaders, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Not everyone, but everyone whose spirit was stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. You see all this long list of resources here that doesn't mean much to you. It reads a little bit like an index or a phone book. Does anyone remember phone books, yellow pages? It reads like the yellow pages. All who were with them aided them with vessels of silver and gold. Essentially, these are all the articles that the original oppressor and exiler, King Nebuchadnezzar, took out of the temple to use as his own spiritual resources for the 70 years. And this is what's amazing is Cyrus releases that. The vessels of gold, the beasts, I mean, taking a page out of, you know, um, Grinch stole Christmas with beasts. That's all their livestock. That's everything that they needed to rebuild. So God didn't just call his people. He sent the right resources. And not only did he do that, he pulled the resources out of the very country that had oppressed them in the first place. Meaning he wasn't just saying, go do this, but I'm not going to be with you. He was saying, I know the plans I have for you. This king is going to take all of that resourcing away from you, and then I'm going to give it all back to you. And you're going to be able to rebuild the kingdom that I have always envisioned. Now some of you, you don't even know what to do with this. You're waiting for the shoe to drop waiting for some sort of personal application towards your personal individual life and I'm afraid I'm here to tell you that there isn't really an individual application in this text. I don't believe this text will help you know send you into financial glory for the next 20 to 25 years. This text essentially is about one thing. A call to follow God at all costs. Some of you don't know this, but this is the call of every Christian who would call themselves a disciple of Jesus Christ. A good definition is found with Jonathan Dodson. And he says this. This was before we came up with our three words, but notice they're still there that Ben described. A disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus is rational. They learn. They develop. They're a student. That's where the word disciple comes from. It comes from the educational world. Someone who learns more about God and follows Jesus. They're relational. They're called not simply to follow Jesus, but to be involved in a family. And thirdly, they're missional. Or they act like a missionary. Some of you have only experienced the first call. You've only heard about the first call to follow Jesus. But even that call has been a confusing one where you have been told that following Jesus makes your life better and easier and more comfortable, and that is not anywhere in Scripture. I'm here to state carefully that when you are called to Jesus, yes, your future is secure. Yes, your identity is stable. Yes, you have no need to worry or experience shame or guilt over sin. Yes, those things are true. But no, your life does not necessarily get spiritually or physically or emotionally easier. In almost every case, it gets more difficult. 
I know, very seeker-sensitive this morning, aren't we? Welcome to Urban Grace. Why do I say that? It's because it's missed constantly when we talk about following Jesus. There were many who followed Jesus up to a certain point, and then when they realized that it actually got more difficult, Jesus actually said, are you, are you going to leave? Is this the point you're going to leave? These are some of the things he said. Jesus was incredibly seeker-sensitive, wasn't he? He said this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many, those who want to retain their comfort. The gate is really wide. That kind of path in life is pretty well-traveled. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. If you think that is an anomaly, let me read from a different passage. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Did you catch that? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He was using an executional tool as a metaphor for the path to follow him. He was not using something that we put around our necks that's silver or gold. If it, He's essentially saying, if anyone wants to follow me, he should sidle up in his electric chair or lay down on his executionary table. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who can see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able to come with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Someone who considers what they're up against. So which of you would think this is just like adding something into your spiritual life? He said it's like a battle where you're vastly outnumbered that if you don't carefully consider whether you want to go into battle or not, it's a waste of time. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You see, the call in Ezra to return is very similar to our call and every call that every Christian and every disciple will have to make. For some of you, this is your first call to discipleship. This is your first call to what this may look like. That, there's, a, there's a conversion that has to go on because you and I, by our nature, are on a path. We're on our own mission. And our mission is about us and what we want and what we can accomplish and what we can earn and how comfortable we can be. And when we turn our lives over to Jesus, essentially what we do is we say, Jesus, I will take everything that you have, but you take my life in return. I exchange that. I exchange my life for your life. What that also means is not just your spiritual life, but your whole life. It includes your schedule, your calendar, your wallet, your relationships, your motivation, your pursuit of life, your, the, whatever you're worshiping right now that's not going so well, you give that up to Jesus. You confess that to Jesus and you say, Jesus, take everything that I have. And then you say, Jesus, now you're in charge of my life. And you run my calendar. You run my wallet, my finances. You run my budget. You tell me what I do with my time. You tell me how I act. You tell me how to run my relationships. You tell me what I can and cannot do. You're in charge. But sometimes when we have been converted, 
to Jesus, we also need to be converted to his mission. He doesn't just call people in to live individual spiritual lives. He actually calls them into community, into family. This is also the call, and this is also a conversion that some of us have not yet experienced. And this morning, I think that call, and while we won't get into it, that call is to be one of God's missionaries. The Bible uses a variety of different metaphors. One of them is ambassador. For those of you who don't know what an ambassador is, an ambassador is someone who goes into a foreign country who works for their home country. They don't serve their own interests in that country. They represent a different city, a different country, a different kingdom, and they act constantly as foreigners in a different country. Jesus says, when you turn your life over to me, you are like my ambassador. You belong to my kingdom, and my kingdom is not of this world. But I want you to function in a foreign world, in an enemy world. I want you to bless that world. I want you to bless that city. I want you to preach the gospel in that city. I want you to tell people about me. I want you to live in such a way that when people see you, it points to me. This morning, have you been converted to Jesus' mission? I don't know what that means for you. This is not self-serving for me. In fact, I'm trying to raise people for Vin. You're welcome, Vin. Some of you have been coming here because this is comfortable for you. You've come here to consume. You've come here to be comfortable. You've come here to have someone else make meals for you so that you can eat. That's not the call of a disciple. The call of a disciple is not just to be a disciple of Jesus and be converted to his mission, but the mission of making disciples. If you're here to consume, if you're here simply to say, I'd like a church where it's generally filled with fairly young people and the music's a little bit hip and the preaching is understandable, then I'm afraid over time you're going to get real uncomfortable because that's not our mission is to make you comfortable. Our mission is to equip you to be on mission in our city. And for some of you, you will have to, you will feel a lot like Ezra, people in Ezra. You will say, my goodness, that doesn't sound comfortable at all. I think I'll stay here. I think I'll live out the rest of my Christian life in comfort and security. And I won't listen to the call of Jesus. But some of you, I know Jesus is speaking to you because he spoke to me. And this is what I had to wrestle with as well, friends. That at some point, there becomes the great watershed, the great deciding moment where you simply have to decide, am I going to continue to be on my mission or am I going to give my life over for the mission of Jesus? Call the band up at this time. And I want to kind of prepare us for post-service. And here's what I want us to do. There's going to be four people who are leading four different prayer groups. Some of you have never come up for prayer, and this is really uncomfortable. If you're a guest here this morning, I'm going to try to explain this as well as possible, and you're free to join this group, but there's no requirement. This is for those who have simply chosen and want to respond. These four people represent the four quadrants of our city, the northwest, the southwest. Vin will be in the northwest. He's going to lead that prayer meeting. Tim is in the southwest. He's going to lead that meeting. Ben, uh, sorry, Ben is in the southeast. He's going to lead that, this Ben. And then Simon's in the northeast. He's going to lead that. And here's what I want you to do. If Jesus is pulling on your heart to respond in this way, I want you to get up out of your seat when we finish the message, and I want you to go to that area of the city or that person that represents that area of the city and pray for what Jesus is asking you to do. For some of you, this actually means a physical move. 
Some of you need to move from your home to be where Jesus is calling you to be. Some of you need to move spiritually. Some of you need to move emotionally. But all of us need Jesus. So if you feel led, would you go to that quadrant of the city to join that particular group of people to pray for that quadrant of the city? That the Spirit of God would begin and continue to move in your heart for that particular area of the city that God has called you to right now? Would you do that as an act of surrender? To say, Jesus, I'm tired of living my mission. It's not working. You have me. You have everything in my life. And as we sing these next songs, I want you to consider if that's not what you want to do, to simply pray and receive Jesus. The meal that we take each and every week represents the fact that Jesus Christ didn't simply come to die to make your life better, but to change your life and provide you with everything secure that you've ever needed. You can turn your life over to Jesus because he gave everything for you. That's what's represented in the cup and the bread here this morning. The bread represents the body. Jesus lived like a missionary amongst us. Not simply for an example, but so that he could then live perfectly and die unjustly. So that you and I could turn our lives over to Jesus and never have to worry about our eternal security or our identity or anything else. That's represented in the cup or the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so what you're coming to participate in when you come forward for communion or the Lord's table or the Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, it's your participation, your active participation in the family of God. This is why we say this isn't for people who don't believe it. There's nothing magical in this. This is for those who identify who would stand before God and say, I'm in. You're my savior. You lead my mission. So my hope for you is that you don't take that lightly, that you don't come forward just as a way of absolving your sins so you can be another clean week of living, but that you simply say as an act of surrender and humility, I'm coming forward and turning my life today over to you, Jesus Christ. So I invite you to come.